Thank you, uh, Chapel Band, for serving us in such a great way this morning. We've been talking about real Christianity this year, the lifestyle and convictions that make up a real walk with Christ, and it is that I want to speak about this morning from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and that song pairs with our topic this morning here in God's Word, and also as we think about the faith that we must proclaim uh, around, the, around the globe. And so I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11 to understand the conviction of things not seen. That's exactly what was just sung about was that even though God brings calamity, God brings trial into our lives, yet I will still praise him. Though he slay me, I will worship him still. That's, that's the only the cry of a true believer that can say, thank you, God, for taking things away from me because it draws me closer to you. And that's what we want to study this morning. We, we use this phrase sometimes that uh, when a student moves away from the home and, and goes out on their own, they go to college or they go into the military or they move out of the house, there's this phrase we use sometimes and, it, and it's just this simple thing that we say, you know, that, that student or that, that person or maybe the parent is speaking of their, their, their child says, yeah, they're learning how to make the faith their own. And you've probably thought about that at a time or two that you're saying, I, I need to make the faith my own. Uh, what does that mean? It means that when we go out or when we're outside of our parents' influence or perhaps their oversight, what was theirs in faith is not necessarily ours. And learning what it means to make the faith our own is a process, and it's certainly exposing as one gets further and further away from authority and learns what it means to love Christ, seek Him, be someone who follows Him, follows His Word from a convictional way not one that is compelled by eyesight or the authority that's placed over them. Making your faith your own means that the faith must be your own conviction. It must be owned by you. That's exactly what a conviction is. It's something held dearly. It's a belief that compels me. It motivates the individual. It's a conviction that drives behavior. It drives desire. It drives obedience. It drives what I do before God and man. That's what a conviction is, something that we possess, not that someone else can't possess it, but we certainly possess it for ourselves. And Hebrews 11.1 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Before we launch into the chapter here before us, I want to give a brief background to the book of Hebrews, and it's very uh, helpful to understand what these men and women, what our brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years ago were were going through. And these were converts since the day of of Christ and really his resurrection. You might remember Acts 2, 3, 4, where there was many, many believers being added to the faith, it says, as Apostles would do signs and wonders, and Peter would preach or John would preach. Many thousands were coming to the faith. These were 
This, is, this speaks of these converts. And many of those went out into the Roman world of the time. And after 30-some years, the book of Hebrews is written to encourage these saints who were really receiving pressure and trials, temptation from every side. They, weren't, they, they may be Jewish, but they weren't of the Jewish faith anymore. And they were in a Roman world, so they were being pressed on both sides from both Jew and Gentile. So the temptation to solve this tension was mounting over the, over the time that this book had been written. And another temptation was that the temple was still functioning. The temple was still in place. So even though Christ had come and there had been, a, we, they, they now worship a crucified Messiah, there's still this temptation that says, well, then why is this temple still intact? If this is all going away, then what, what's with all the, the temple worship? There's still many hundreds of thousands of Jews going to Jerusalem each year to celebrate this. So what's, what, what's the deal with that? How do I understand this new faith, but in the context of a pressuring Gentile world and a Judaism that still exists? Yet the temptation to return to Judaism was not this draw because it was such a compelling religion or because they just loved being a part of the temple worship. It wasn't that they wanted to go back to the Mosaic law per se, it was this. They wanted to have some type of relief from the pressure and the temptation that they faced every day from those around them. They were facing much persecution and that was tempting them to go back. It wasn't necessarily the draw in and of itself to Judaism. It was motivated and, and you could say compelled and pressed upon by the persecution they faced around them. That was the temptation to go back. So they were thinking maybe there's another way to solve for this. Maybe we had missed something. And the author of Hebrews comes along and says, hold on a second. Hold on a second. You have need of endurance. And this is why he writes this actually lengthy letter to them. And I want to go back to verse 32 of chapter 10 and start there. And he's, he's argued his whole way through this letter, encouraging them to remain with Christ, to not walk away. His arguments or his, you could say, his encouragements or his warnings get stronger and stronger and stronger as the book progresses. And he, and he often calls them to remember, and that's what he does here in verse 32 of chapter 10. And let's, let's start there, and we'll, we'll, we'll move our way into chapter 11. He says this, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come. And will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's stop there for a minute. Just quickly, I want to I give you a definition of faith that might help us this morning before we move into really what the essence of faith is. It says in verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Here's what the author is talking about. That faith deals with the future, the fulfillment of promises that God has given. Even though it is not actually realized right now, faith is that possessing, it is actually a hanging on to what God has promised us and will fulfill. It is the conviction of things unseen. So it deals with spiritual realities just as if they are as real as us being right here in this room. So spiritual realities are as real as earthly realities or visible realities. That's what he's talking about here. Things of God are real. Faith relates to things that are promised by God and yet unfulfilled in our present reality. Let me say that again. Faith relates to things that are promised by God and yet unfulfilled in our present reality. It's the foundation of reality. It's a confident attitude toward things God has promised that impact the present. That's a a, a little bit of a mouthful there, but he goes on to say in verse 6 that you cannot please God unless you start with faith. You can't see God. You cannot trust God. You cannot please God Everything begins with faith. Verse 3, look at it really quick. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's where it begins. By faith, look at it again. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's where it all starts. That's why the creation account is so important. When Moses received those words on Mount Sinai, from God himself, that's where we begin to see, oh, that's how we came into existence. That's what happened long ago. It wasn't anybody or anything other than God himself, the unseen, speaking the seen into existence. That's where it begins. By faith, we understand that. Nothing else will prove that. By faith, you accept Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and that's how you come to understanding that He's the one that created the the world, and it's by his word that we believe that. That's where it begins. And briefly, I just want to overview some examples of faith before we drop into really what makes up faith. What is the essence of faith? 
And the reason we need to cover that this morning is because if the conviction of things unseen or not seen is not yours, student, if it's not yours, Christian, there's no reason to preach God's word. There's no reason to go out. There's no reason to live a righteous life. There's no reason to please God with anything. If I don't have that conviction of things unseen, my life evaporates before me. My motivations for existence, my motivations for doing anything dry up completely. Without this conviction, life comes to a grinding halt. Quickly, some examples. I want us to look at an overview of chapter 11 here, and we'll be skimming this chapter here and there this this morning. Look down at verse 8. He says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. Go down to verse 17. Abraham again. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Look down at the example of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, actually his parents' faith here, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now look at what Moses does as an act of faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is visible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. All these examples of faith show you the actions that these men and women would do to realize or to bring into to action convictions of things that are unseen. All these, all these verbs that describe Moses, he considered, or he chose, or he left, or he kept, all of these help us understand how faith plays itself out. Look down in verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel, and the prophets. Just think about David for a second. What was it that, how, how did David express his faith? There's no description of what David did whatsoever. But if you just go back and read 1 Samuel, a little bit of 2 Samuel, and you understand the Psalms, over and over and over, David is waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord for what? Well, he was promised the throne at an early age, and that didn't come to fruition till his late 30s, maybe early 40s. He was waiting on the Lord to keep his enemies at bay or to forgive him of the sins of his youth. He was waiting on the Lord for the covenant that God made with him. David waited and waited and waited on the Lord as an act of faith. You think about the prophets that are mentioned there. You mentioned Samuel as a prophet, but also just the prophets in general. What did the prophets do? The prophets spoke 
on behalf of God. Some were elevated like Daniel. Some were thrown in a pit or a cistern like Jeremiah. Either way, these men did things for Christ, did things for the sake of God as an act of faith, convicted of things that were unseen, brought into reality of things that are seen. And look at what others had to go through. Verse 36, the end he says, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these endured because they had, verse 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Student, it's coming to the end of the year. Some of you are leaving us for good. And you are graduating, you are moving away, some of you are coming back, but even then, I want to charge you before the end of the year with this conviction of, the re- of real Christianity that you must, must live, must live for Christ based on things unseen. It is a world out there that throws everything out you, at you to say, no, you must, you must be compelled, you must be ruled by things that you see. You must be driven by those around you or the trends of those around you, the technology around you, the friends around you. What the world offers you must compel you, and this is the complete opposite of what a Christian is called to do, is that, and that is to be ruled and driven by convictions from an unseen reality. And so I want to dive into, there's a few things that, uh, that we're going to scan in, in Hebrews chapter 11, not just the examples, but really what is the essence of faith. And I have five, five here this morning. What is really the essence of faith? Here's what, here's what it is based on Hebrews 11. First of all, it's an exchange of temporal treasure for eternal reward. It's an exchange process. It's an exchange of temporal treasure for eternal reward. Look back with me in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. He says, recall the former days. He didn't say when things were really great, but he says when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. We could go back to Moses in chapter 11, verses 25. It says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than, this is a great phrase, probably underline this one, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Notice the dilemma that these people are in, what Moses was in. It was a real life situation for these men and women. He says to recall, he says you knew, choosing, Moses chose, he considered these things. That means there was an exchange process taking place in the heart of Moses, in the heart of these people saying, it's worth 
going to see my friend in prison, even though that would associate me with them, the very cause that they're thrown in prison for? Or say, Moses, it's worth it to me to go out of this palace to not be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, to give that up, what, for what? For what, Moses? Why would you set that aside? All that good, very comfortable lifestyle, rewarding, glorious. But Moses would say, yeah, but that's temporary. That's temporary. I would rather go out, I would rather choose, make that active choice to go out and be with God's people and actually suffer mistreatment with them rather than the glories of a palace. They, they faced immense difficulty in this uh, situation they're in, saying that they, their property was plundered. They joyfully accepted that. That is an exchange, student, of giving up one thing for another. That is an everyday choice that you and I must make. That to walk by faith, to move into what God has called you to do, the, the, the race that he's set before you, there is always, this is a constant letting go of one thing and grasping onto another. Letting go of something temporal for something that is eternal. That is your lifestyle. That conviction must compel you. If you're trying to move through life hanging on to things that are temporary, that are visible, that are seen, all of those will drag your faith down. All of those will come sooner or later to the forefront where Christ will make you make a choice to say, do you love me more than? Do you love me more than? And that's what faith is, is it's a, an exchange of temporal treasure to let that go and say, the eternal reward is worth it. Another aspect of, of faith is this, a reverent obedience to God's call and promises a reverent obedience to God's call and his promises. It's re- what it is this, it's, it's to, to put it in a more simple way, it's just listening to God's word, listening to God's word. I wanna do a quick little scan. Go all the way back to Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Go all the way back to Hebrews one, verse one, where he says this. This is a big deal to the author of Hebrews. It is an extremely big deal to him. He makes this point throughout the book. You could really even say that it is a major theme in the book of Hebrews, and that is simply to listen, to listen to God. Verse 1 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The Hebrews would readily agree with that. Yes, we know that. But verse 2 says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. That's what the Hebrews need to grasp onto. Yes, they believed in Moses. Yes, they believed in the prophets. But the author here is saying, listen, listen to his son. Just like Christ would say to Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, or I should say, God spoke out of the cloud to Peter saying, this is my son, listen to him, listen. That is what faith does. It's, it's a reverent it's a reverent obedience to the call of Christ. Flip over, if you will, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
He's proving over and over that this is God who's speaking through his son. Verse 1 in chapter 2 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Look over at verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Keep going with me. Chapter 4, famous passage, chapter 4, verse 11. Striving to enter the rest, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He gets stronger and stronger until we come to chapter 10 again. Chapter 10, verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, and here's the phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he talks about how if you disobeyed Moses' law, it, was, it received a just punishment. How much greater is it to not ignore the spirit of grace that is striving with, with us through Jesus speaking? What, what an obedient faith does, the essence of faith is that it listens. It just listens to God's word. And I would ask you, student, this morning, you've heard... I think at this point, something around 40 chapel messages this year. Um, I think I'm off on that number. It seems like more. Um, You've heard the word on Sundays. You've heard the word in and amongst the community. Uh, You've heard the word, as as I think Caleb said last week, Caleb Lawson, as as he preached, "It's, it's, it's easy here. It's almost like you're in this spiritual river, floating down, going with the flow. The current here at the Masters University is a spiritual current. But how about you individually? Pull yourself out of that current and set yourself on shore for a second. Is there still a compelling desire to tune in, to incline your ear, to listen, to be soft-hearted to God's word? Are you soft-hearted to what the Spirit says and compels you to do? Do you listen obediently to God's call or is there a, like a, a resistance or a, a, a checking of God's word or, or a stubbornness when the Spirit speaks? Or, or is your heart moldable? This is, the, this is the point. Faith listens and it's united with belief. Faith listens and is united with belief. Here's another aspect of faith. Number three, 
It just trusts God rather than circumstances. Very simply, it trusts in God rather than in circumstances. This is one of the hardest things to do as a human. To trust the unseen rather than the, the, the scene that is right before us, that is promising everything our flesh wants. And that is what Satan is going to throw at us. That is what the world is going to live by. And that is what our flesh, at the end of the day, wants its own comfort, to trust in something other than God himself. Whether it be a place, a location, a position, a people, one's feelings, one own, one's own understanding, one's own preferences. I want you to look at this, look at this for me really quick. Chapter 11 again. Look at verse 19. I'm sorry, look at verse 8. First, Abraham obeyed when he was called. There's that obedience to God's word. He was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. That doesn't sound very successful. That doesn't sound, it might sound adventurous to you, but to Abraham that was leaving everything that he knew, everything that was dear, everything that was secure, everything that was providing some type of security for him. And God says, I want you to leave that behind. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you. That takes trust in God rather than the location that Abraham was used to. Others gave up position. Moses gave up a strong position. Moses gave up a being a prince. <laughs> Moses gave up title. Others gave up their own people, gave or left their own people behind. Others did not go off their feelings or their own understanding, but they trusted in God in this passage. For sake of time, we will not look at everyone, but I want you to look at what, again, uh, Moses gave up in verse 23, verse 24. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up that name. He gave up the palace. He gave up those fleeting pleasures of sin. He gave up the wealth and the treasures of Egypt. That wasn't just a easy choice for Moses. It was a choice that required faith. Here's one that hopefully we don't have to face, but perhaps some of us will. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In order to do that, what would it take to keep wandering or to stay in prison and to not accept or to refuse release And to continue to suffer that punishment. That takes an extreme amount of trust or faith or conviction in the unseen rather than your present circumstances. A fourth aspect of faith is this. And this is one that is 
very easy, easy to relate to, and that is it's a costly offering or risk of self. It's a costly offering or a risk of self. Possessions, time, or whatever is required. And this is where I want to camp out for a little bit, student, this morning. It's a costly offering of, or risk of self. They gave up sheep. Abel gave up sheep. Not as costly as giving up a son like Abraham did. Or like Moses' parents did to give up his, their son. They gave up a misunderstanding of others. Or spending the night with lions. To pull that out of a flannel graphy Sunday school story just think for that. Think, think of that for a second. Daniel had an easy choice to make. Said he was not allowed to pray to any other God. He chose to do that anyway. There's, there's all kinds of choices one could make before he gets to the den of lions. He does not know that he'll wake up on the other side of that. But to us, we just see it as one snapshot and say, oh yeah, Daniel and the den of lions. But to actually walk through that by faith, slow that down for a second. And freeze frame what Daniel actually had to do. Is he had to set aside the temporal. Set aside his trust in his circumstances. Set, put his faith, his trust in God more than in the mouth of lions. Or in what the king's edict was. That's the choice being, being made here. It's a costly, costly risk to oneself. It's a... It's a risk that would say, I will stay in prison. I will even go to the point of losing my own life. And we talk about going. We talk about speaking. We sang about it this morning. We are encouraged to say, God, give me the courage to speak boldly. Think about that for a second. Just where you sit right now, with your friends, with your neighbors, with those who do not know the Lord, or even those who do know the Lord. And if I could argue for the lesser to the greater, if we can't do that with those who are in front of us, who even know the God of faith, why would we ever do that with someone who bears the sword or could humiliate us or take something away from us or take our own life away from us? So the challenge to you today is this. Are you willing to even walk today, April 15th, Monday, by faith, in a costly way, to take a risk that you wouldn't ordinarily take unless it was by faith? I think there's an interesting contrast in the, in the New Testament, and that is how you see the Judaizers basically saying this. They're going around with one big message, and that is this. Christians, church, we figured out a way that you don't have to suffer. The Judaizers would be the complete opposite, the antithesis, I can't even say that this morning, the antithesis to the author of Hebrews. That's what the Judaizers' message was. If you want to know what they taught, everything you see in Hebrews, flip it on its head, that's what the Judaizers were teaching. We figured out a way that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be in Christ and you can be in Judaism and you guess what? You don't have to suffer. You're in, but you don't have to suffer. 
And that is exactly what the flesh wants. We want a Christianity, not in our heart of hearts, not what the spirit in us wants, but in our own natural flesh, we would like a Christianity that says, hey, you don't have to suffer. You can keep doing you and you can please God all at the same time. And that is not what Paul would say. But I want to show you this. I want you to flip to Galatians chapter 6 so you can see it for your own eyes. Galatians chapter 6 verse 12 says this. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Why do they do this? And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. That's a pretty clear contrast to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, where he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what Paul would say. That's why he had such a hard time with the Judaizers coming in and influencing the churches. It's no different than you today, Christian. People trying to help you, or I should say, destroy your faith by saying, you don't have to suffer as a Christian. You can serve Christ, but live in some type of middle ground that keeps you away from the hostility, that says you can have it both ways. You don't have to suffer. And yet, we would easily agree with Job's reply, the song that was sung for us this morning, though he slay me, I will still hope in him. That's the cry of a true Christian, someone that says, even if it costs me personally, it's a, it's a costly offering, it's a giving up of oneself or something, I'll still go forward and I will still bless you, God, at the end of the day. Lastly, it's, the essence of faith includes this. It's a seeking for God over all things. A seeking for God over all things or a seeking of God over all things. Flip back to chapter 11 of, of Hebrews Chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says in verse 10 that Abraham was seeking a city whose foundation, whose designer and builder was God. Sarah received power to conceive even though she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Down in verse 13 through 16, we see that they were seeking a homeland that was greater. If they wanted to go back, they could have, but they were seeking a a homeland that was greater. Faith requires this. Faith is a conviction of things not seen. And that ultimately is, I'm not looking for something here even on earth. I'm looking for things beyond this earth, something eternal. And as we conclude, I want to give you some detriments to the faith, some rocks, if you will, some rocks that replace Christ to you this morning. I, I, I thought it might be helpful just to bring it down 
to, to a, an everyday level that you might be, be living in or seeking or being... Number one, detriments to faith. First of all, a detriment to faith is that you're distracted by things. Distracted by things. We are so easily distracted by stuff, by money, by events, by material goods, by technology, by travel, by pictures. And when we're distracted by things, it's not as if the thing itself is the wrong thing. That's what's so dangerous about just so much quantity and so much volume out there for you to look at is that when we're distracted by things, we, we've taken up all of our time to, in a sense, be. I can't help but look at those things instead of God himself. Ask yourself, what do you stare at? What do you fix your eyes on? What do you think about? What is your mind set on? And I would, I would say... Pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119.37 where he says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my, he's asking the Lord, turn my eyes away from things that are worthless and give me life in your ways. Here's another detriment to the faith. It's this, clamoring for status. Clamoring for status. Achievements, keeping up with trends, pursuing the right career or the perfect career or the best career or the career that will get you fill in the blank. That is such a distraction to faith itself. God hasn't called you to be the most successful at whatever field you are called to be in. He's called you to be faithful. He's called you to live by faith. I think of that verse in John five forty four where Christ says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? You can't, you can't have God's glory because you're too busy getting each other's glory, is what he's saying to the Pharisees. You're receiving glory from one another that blocks you from receiving the glory that only comes from God. Clamoring for status. I'm, I'm, a, I'm fearful that so many of us are, are thinking that that is what the Christian life is, is it's adding Jesus to what we've already decided is the best course for our life. That's not Christianity. That's a you version of Christianity that is, in the end, empty. And it sounds right, but it's not too different than the health and wealth gospel. It's basically saying, Jesus, help me do what I want to do. Jesus, help me pursue what I think I would like to do each and every day. That's not Christianity. That's not a giving up of self to pursue Christ. That's, that really is adding Jesus to your train so he can pull you along through life and to do what you want to do. That's clamoring for status rather than say, I will go anywhere and do anything and say anything Jesus wants me to do in order that I might walk by faith and not by sight. He might call you. He might gift some of you to be incredibly successful. But that's not the point. That's not the goal. Here's another detriment to the faith, and that is depending on self. Depending on self. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 talks about not boasting in riches, not boasting in strength, and not boasting in intellect or wisdom. You see, when we're well supplied, we don't 
see our need for God. When we're rich, we don't see our need for God. When we're smart, we don't see our need for God. When we have such strong bodies, we don't see our need for God. But when those things begin to diminish, again, like the song this morning, that's what presses upon us to say, will you still bless him? Will you still thank him? Even though God begins to retract on things that he gave perhaps in a different day. Lastly, a detriment to faith is this. Satisfaction with this life. Simple satisfaction with this life. I guess what I'm trying to press upon you this this semester, student, is that life is not made up of just even the best things, the best Christian things, the best ministry, the best relationships, even in the here and now. It's beyond that. And if, if, if you're putting your hope even in something good that is right here that you can see, it's bound to let you down. I think of that verse in 2 Timothy 4.10 where Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas used to be a partner in ministry with Paul. And you can see it in his last book that Demas is in love with the present world. And I would just challenge you this morning to, to, to save your soul, to be satisfied with the living water, to be satisfied in Christ. Not be satisfied, not, I'm not even talking about evil things, I'm talking about good things, even righteous things, that your soul is not satisfying in the doing of those things or the getting to those things or the accomplishment of those things or living that life, but in Christ himself in the living water, in what really matters. I think of that song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. To the the chorus, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If we don't believe, if we don't have the faith, if we don't know what the unseen realities are and have the conviction that those are as real as our present day. There's, there's again, there's, there's no reason to, to live for Christ. There's no reason to go out. There's no reason to speak. Lastly, I would conclude with this verse, these verses in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us Also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's the key. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the Passion Week. This is where we look forward to Resurrection Sunday. And as we look forward to the lowest point in Christ's life, that's where we need to put our encouragement. That's where we need to put our hope. He endured the cross, despising the shame, all because of the joy that was set before him. Let's close in prayer, and then Harry's going to come up with the go teams and and commission us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that we would be men and women of faith. Lord, that it would be 
compelling to us, Lord, to, to know the things that are, that are real, that are truly real, and that that would motivate our lifestyle, that would motivate our obedience, that would motivate our convictions in the here and now. Father, we ask for this faith. We ask, ask for greater faith. Lord, we know at many times we have weak faith, and we need more. We need more of you. We need a bigger heart, a bigger capacity to understand you, to believe in you, to live for you. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name.